good afternoon fellow green men and women of all ages this is the isle of faces and we are here for another episode of scraps and scrolls or valar Aridis, part eight of game of thrones i am sir buckley and i'm saying hello to you from still pretty sunny still pretty hot england we're certainly doing well on that front it looks to continue good job sun as i said this is part eight so we're nearing the end of game of thrones aziz and Asheo got to their live stream on uh, on sunday yesterday i'm sure it's another good one unfortunately i was celebrating my own name day yesterday so could not catch it thank you also to everyone sending messages on twitter and the like very much appreciated i'm glad to report i received many books i haven't even counted it's like 12 books i'm very excited i'll get to that another time also just in terms of announcements uh, I think, as he's mentioned, that uh, next week, so for part nine, there'll be eight chapters. That's right, eight chapters instead of seven, because the book doesn't uh, divide exactly. So we've got to go an extra mile at some point, or at least that is Aziz's story. I suspect that it's actually because if we do eight, then our last chapter will be Eddard 15, which seems a rather appropriate chapter to take a break on. So following from there, Aziz and Shea will be flying here there and everywhere around around the globe so there'll be a little three week break to uh, allow you to all catch up etc etc allows me to get some other stuff done in terms of other faces perhaps i will be able to use that break to either get our first patreon only episode out with me and the lovely lady buckley talking weddings a song of ice and fire weddings or even maybe another guest episode but that is, i've checked that is not legally binding you can't hold me to that so i will say it but you can do nothing if I uh, let you down. But I'll try my best not to. Speaking of Lady Buckley, she will be back. Fear not, you don't need to just listen to me forever. She will be back soon when we find some time. She's been too busy lately preparing a wonderful birthday for me, so I'm. So I have to give her a little shout out before just being a really good wife. Good wife, great wife, the best wife. Well, I'm here saying thank yous. Thank you to all our lovely patrons and their support. Very much appreciated. There will be a, a patron wall uh, saying a more individualised thank you to all going up on the, the grindstone.co.uk when I get to it. Maybe that will be in that three-week gap as well. Nice to have a summer holiday. Anyway, today, let's get to it. So this is part eight of Game of Thrones. Let me run through the chapters. Let me run through the chapters that we will be getting to today. Like I said, I wasn't able to catch the live stream myself, so I'll apologise now with some of these notes run over with what... Aziz went through. Hopefully the document will keep us safe, but you never know. There might be a little bit of layover, a little bit of repeating, or might even miss out some stuff, but hopefully not. Hopefully we will keep flying straight. My apologies if we do. Anyway, the chapters. We start with Sansa 3, the one with the, the lemon cake heist, we'll call that one. Then on to Eddard 12, the one in the Godswood. I think you know what I'm talking about. Daenerys 5, the one with the horse heart. Not much needs to be said there. You can guess the ending. Eddard 13, we're not even going over the one by, we're just saying goodbye Robert, that's the, the entire title. John 6, the one of the school trip to the Weirwood Grove. Eddard 14, the one where it all just bloody well goes wrong. And Aya 4, the, the one where it keeps bloody well going wrong again, but with more blood. And that is today, starts off pretty gentle, by the end it's going to get pretty rough. So let's get to it, Sands of Free. So this is a chapter where I think we can, you can almost accuse Sansa of kind of going, not backwards, she hasn't gone backwards in terms of her growth, just to remind you it's still there, she is still a teenage girl, she is still living in this, she's not living in a dream world, she just wants her world to reflect those dreams and those songs that she's so uh, insistent on. You can see hints of it that reality isn't really lining up and it's frustrating her a bit. She's She looks at Yoren and thinks he shouldn't be a Night's Watchman because he's 
kind of unclean and dirty. That doesn't fit. Aya, she's too messy. She's not what a lady is supposed to be. Joffrey should be the one to hunt the White Heart and go and touch him instead of killing him and stuff like that. You can just see these lines starting to blur for Sansa and she's not really got around to outright declaring it yet or outright noticing but you can see those hints are certainly there she just can't quite let go of that dreamscape yet she's not there she still makes some good points though it's not to say that she's completely dulali off in la la land she's still able to see what's going on and she's sharp enough to make valid observations her idea about sir loris being uh being a good idea to send him after gregor again is actually a pretty good idea politically if you think about it Obviously, that is not what Sansa's anger is all about. She's still buying into the story of it all, the optics that Sir Loras, the Shining Knight, should defeat Sir Gregor, the evil mountain. But actually, that is quite a good idea in terms of letting the Tyrells, or letting Loras specifically, get what he wants. That could have helped Ned out later, but that's a whole a whole other story we won't go into now. Let's instead get to Mr. Littlefinger and his... Mr. Littlefinger sounds even creepier, actually, isn't it? Mr. Littlefinger and his major grooming slash creeping vibes in this chapter. That's not a rare occurrence. That's almost every chapter of him in, but we definitely get a big dose of it right at the beginning here. When he approaches Sansa and Septimor Dane and just kind of sticks his nose in a little bit, it's not needed. He's really serving his own interests. Firstly, two sides to these interests. There's the weird one where he sees Sansa as a new Catelyn. And, you know, it's not going to be long before we learn that he was trying to get Sansa's hand in marriage from Cersei, etc. And just, yeah, we don't want to talk about it. But also serves another purpose of him being able to sow more dissent amongst the Stark. He's kind of pitting Sansa a little bit against Ned, but not so openly that it's obvious. It's very clever, very devious. And again we don't want to talk about it but he's tempting Sansa of that, that adult side of questioning Ned questioning your elders and your parents which is part of growing up Sansa would naturally do that eventually anyway but really shouldn't be pushed to do it by this random dude who's too interested in your mum it's not a eh, no we don't like it we also get from this interaction line life is not a song sweetling you may learn that one day to your sorrow and that's repeated in Storm of Swords after uh, Littlefinger takes Sansa away on the on the ship away from King's Landing. So we see that return and that link, kind of a hint between this isn't just weird interactions from Littlefinger. These two are going to become entwined in each other's plots further down the road. And it's also true, to be fair. It is good advice. Sansa does need to learn that life is not a, not a song and it will be to her sorrow that she learns it. So Littlefinger isn't wrong. But this is kind of like his approach with Ned, where he drip feeds good advice, inst amongst outright lies and manipulation, and he just surrounds good advice with being with just being creepy and weird. But there we go. I got another quote for you here from a little later in the chapter. This is where Sansa is again thinking of what happened in the throne room and what she's been seeing in court. She thinks Alan was handsomer than Jory had been. He was going to be a knight one day. So perhaps this is the best line for showing Sansa's stage of development and how she's not quite there yet. The wheels are turning. We've already seen back up the tourney and her interactions with Sandok again that she is learning and she's getting there, but she's not quite there yet. And this quote shows her off. She still thinks that being handsome equates to being deserving. That Alan or Elaine or not, it's obviously not Elaine, but however you pronounce that name, she's thinking of the one of Ned's household guards here because he was handsome and jewelry that he was more equated to being a knight and again we're linking back to the beginning of the chapter when she's thinking about Sir Loras 
and how because he is basically in the most beautiful of nights and he could you know he should be the one to defeat Gregor again the ugliest or darkest of nights so those ties to that on the face or on the surface type viewing they're still there but they will melt away soon as we know there's a nice little passage about Sansa and Jane Paul stealing dessert and they gossip on the steps and Sansa, I think the line is something like Sansa felt almost as wicked as I or something like that. So this is kind of peak Kin's Landing for Sansa and Jane. Let's not forget Jane either. Before everything goes wrong, they, she gets to do some gossip. She's involved in the court intrigue. She knows how things are working. There's even a bit of dessert stealing. They kind of got the run of the castle. It's fun. It's nice. Sansa seems to be having as much fun as she ever did at Winterfell. This is the life she wanted with all the songs and knowing about these important things and seeing the tourney like she has and the balls and the dances and the feasts and everything else. So Sansa's quite happy. But as we know, very soon it's going to go. So this is just a nice... George lets the girls have one last fun day as children before essentially Sansa's childhood ends for all intents and purposes pretty quickly. Quick note on Septimal Dane here, she compares, she's always painting Aya as the bad option and then she holds Sansa to that comparison. So she's always saying to Sansa, don't be like Aya, Aya is bad. So this isn't actually great work here from Septimal Dane because it doesn't work great for Aya. She, that doesn't bring her any close to wanting to be like Sansa and it just sets Sansa apart from Aya. It really doesn't help their relationship. Now, okay, a bit late to be noticing that by this point because the girl's split from here this might even be the last time is this the last time they see each other i'm not sure that might have been mentioned on the on the live stream but certainly very soon they are going to split and so far never see each other again so obviously this will all seem very trifling and unimportant in terms of what they used to argue about compared to the trials they're about to go through but we should definitely be just kind of looking at Septal Mordain and thinking, you're not that great of a teacher slash guardian to these girls, and you're kind of probably part of the problem. Sansa also has a dream about Lady. Uh, it's nice to see her referring back to Lady in this chapter, because she doesn't really think back on all that too much in her chapters. There's just kind of not enough room. There's too much going on in King's Landing in this book. And it seems like it's like a shade, a whisper of a wolf dream. It's obviously not a full-on wolf dream, because there is no wolf any longer unfortunately i don't recall sansa ever having another of these i'd have to have a look maybe she does but it would be interesting to know if she just continues having half dreams like these kind of whispers of wolf dreams instead of the full war dreams that eventually Aya and john and bran certainly get it's really it's one of those questions we're probably never going to get answered but knowing about rob's warging abilities rickon's warging abilities what Sansa could have had if Lady had survived. Real teasing Fred there. Now when Ned does eventually tell them that they're going home, that everything's going to go wrong, King's Landing, and they need to get out of there, it's quite funny to me that both Aya and Sansa actually think that they're being punished and going home after the difficulties they both had coming down, losing Lady in Nymeria, and how their relationship really splintered. They've both found a kind of happiness in the capital. Aya of Syrio... And Sansa, she's getting on in court, and like I've just said, but even with how far against and these arguments they keep having, they are still quite similar in the way they react to and the news that they're supposed to go home. And there's another line, it says, this is Sansa speaking, she says, Father, I only just now remembered, I can't go away, I'm to marry Prince Joffrey. And in the past, I always took this line as kind of an attempt at, at cuteness or curtness, and Sansa trying to off foot or dodge around Ned in the way that children sometimes do with their parents maybe politeness will get me the ability to stay but it's not she actually 
does think of other stuff before Joffrey. She actually did forget. And it just shows that it's not really Joffrey she loves. It's the idea of Joffrey and what being with him brings. That life, the royal life, the courtly life that Joffrey is a, not her only link to, but is a major bridge to. And when we go back to the beginning of the chapter, uh, I think as he's got to this on the stream, those hints that she does know what Joffrey's really like, but she doesn't really want to admit that. It just goes to show that it's not, she doesn't really care about Joffrey the person. It's just Joffrey the prince and Joffrey the idea that Sansa is so invested in. And obviously, again, that is not going to last for very much longer. Last point on Sansa's chapter, then. It's just interesting that Ned is saying about how the sea is the far safer option at this time. That's already been repeated. Catelyn's had a few sea voyages in this in this book as well. Sir Roger didn't like them, but they were safer. Which goes to show, because by the end of Feast Dance timeline and the beginning of Winds of Winter, the Narrow Sea is absolutely not the safest option. Times have changed. Autumn storms have come in. It's very, very dangerous just in terms of sailing. There's lots of ships going down. There's increased piracy on the step zones or rain waters and all his... Uh, wheelings and dealings and what's happened since kind of Stannis has left Dragonstone. It's a very different time. So it's just good to see those kind of markers that George slips in for us to to recognise. Onwards, first Eddard chapter of the day. There's always get a few in. But this is obviously a very famous chapter, one that gets talked to a lot and is often referred to as, well, not a good idea by Ned. Certainly some validity in that. Not always too clear cut, but definitely yeah but anyway before we get to the Cersei stuff there are there's other things to talk about first and my first note is about how Ned thinks about what John Aaron would do in his situation which makes sense because he is in John Aaron's opposition and he's following on John Aaron's investigation but it is interesting that Ned never really thinks about what his own dad would do Rickard Stark and he wasn't a political slouch we don't know that much about him but we know he wasn't he wasn't just out of it and ignoring everything he was playing his part so i wonder why ned never thinks about well what would dad do in this situation what would he have done quite possibly because it's just too painful to think about given how rickard ended especially as he died in the place that ned is in right now or perhaps it's just that he thinks winterfell politics are just too different from king's landing politics for certainly validity in that as well who knows just an interesting thing to notice there. Now Ned goes through a little kind of roundup of his current situation. He brings us all up to speed with the different members of the small council and what their deal is and what he thinks their their stake in all this is. And it does show how Ned's grown and how he definitely he's not a political slouch by any stretch of the imagination. He can see the situation around him. It's just that he re- hasn't really learned how to directly influence all the different parts at once. He's not too good at multitasking, I guess, Ned. He kind of settles on one thing or the other in terms of these small council members. I don't think he can see all the moving parts here or how fluid the situation can be. I've brought this up before, but so Ned, he's trying to get Sansa and Aya on the Wind Witch. And I've thought many times about what would have happened if Sansa and Aya had got on that boat, even without Ned, even if Ned had to stay behind, whatever, been delayed. They had got on the ship and sailed to Dragonstone with this letter that Ned writes. Because I, this is very difficult to think in terms of timing and just it gets very intricate. But let's say that they had got there with Stannis when he's keeping the ships and he doesn't let them leave. I wonder if, given that Rob would have still come down, trying free Ned, 
possibly they would still think that the start that the Lannisters have Sansa and Aya. Maybe if Stannis doesn't declare, that's where they are. We don't know. But anyway, let's say the War of the Five Kings progresses that way. Would Sansa and Aya have become prisoners of war or bargaining chips for Stannis? It's very possible. It's very possible indeed. Again, so much depends on that timing and when they get there specifically. But hmm. Very, very possible. And obviously that just bears a lot of... There's a hundred ways that could affect things. We're not going to go into that. There is no time. Now, speaking of children, Ned dreams again of dead Targaryen children. You can really see how scared he is for just kind of children across the board here. He's obviously scared for Sansa and Arya, the danger they are in. Also, John as well, giving that he's dreaming of dead Targaryen children and what he knows about John. He's also scared for Cersei's kids, even Joffrey at this point. And, okay, fair enough, the decision to save them does kind of doom him. But I think even if he knew that going in, even if you said, you, Ned, you can replay this, go back to chapter 12 if you want. You can either try and save the children and you'll be doomed, or you can not try and save them and maybe you'll live. I think you'd choose doom every time knowing dear old Neddy. Converse that with Robert and how he has an easier time forgiving fighting men than he does innocent children. I think Ned tries to barter with himself here that oh, maybe there is a chance for Robert to show mercy. Mm, no, no, no. So Barristan the Bold, yeah, he he wields a sword. Robert knows that guy. He knows his mind. Forgive him. Innocent child who's never done anything. Ah, mm, Robert isn't is it able to connect with them let's just kill them instead i do like to think what would have happened if ned had got the news through to robert if the boar attack hadn't happened and robert lives so let's say he does walk cersei chooses not to leave ned warns robert robert does go mental as ned fears and he does behead joffrey tommen and marcella and maybe cersei and jamie also what would ned's reaction have been to that really even if it's justified well not ju obviously not the killing of the children but even if Robert has a precedent for doing that legally and he's allowed to as king, obviously, blah, blah, blah. And even if Ned was aware of it going in, what would that reaction have been? I think it would have been worse this time. He's not going to live through all that again. There could have, anything could have happened here. I don't think we should discount the icy fury of Ned Stark in, the, in regarding the death of children. You could really see him going against Robert. If he sees Robert as a real Ares figure now, killing three innocent children, not their fault, they're born of incest, for all of Joffrey's faults, that could really lead to some bad stuff. Maybe even some banner calling from Ned. Who knows? Didn't happen anyway, so let's move on. So Ned, he finally regrets the losing of men in terms of he sent his household guard away bit by bit for various duties. And he's finally saying, oh, I probably should not have done that. I think this this reminds me of the slow chipping away of John's allies when he's Lord Commander of Dance of the Dragon. He sends his friends away. He sends his supporters away bit by bit. Slightly different. That was more of John's choice than Ned was kind of backed in against the wall here. He had to send some men. But you can see the same thing where just that bed of bedrock of support has been chipped away by the very people it's supposed to support. So there we go. Now onto the meeting with Cersei then. Uh, it, only it only struck me during this reread that Cersei actually isn't being sarcastic about not knowing about Jon Arryn. She generally doesn't really know why Jon Arryn died and how, etc. She's probably quite glad he did, but she didn't pull the poison trigger, so to speak. She was just a beneficiary. So it's actually quite, quite funny that Ned just kind of takes that for face value and says, oh yeah, right, okay, what's her? And Cersei acts pretty cool with Ned during this. She puts on a brave face. She's quite aggressive in these negotiations, if you want to call them that. But thing, we've got to remember, things were far from set at this particular moment in time. 
she didn't yet definitely have the means to complete the the uprising and the coup and putting Joffrey on the throne. Hence why she says to Ned, if I give you some alone time with me, maybe we can work something out here. I don't think she's doing that unless she really needs to. But that's why it's so, it's so critical here. Everything is so tightly wound in terms of timing and decisions made at the last minute. If Ned had agreed to work with Renly, if he had convinced Littlefinger to actually work with him, and then we get into a question of whether Littlefinger would have betrayed Ned whatever, very possibly, but maybe not if certain offers are made. What timing Cersei uh, confirms this alliance with Littlefinger, what he gets from her. Everything is so wound up, it's almost impossible to detangle. But this, right here, this conversation, moment in time in the godswood, nothing is set. Very easily could have gone completely wrong for Cersei, completely brilliant for Ned. But again, we're back to our alas alarm. Didn't happen anyway. And Cersei mentions about uh, Jamie holding her ankle at birth. So that's just a little early seed to the Valonqar prophecy that we're going to learn about in Feast of Crows that Jamie is indeed the younger sibling, so he can now be involved in that as well. It's not just Tyrion. Obviously, none of that matters right now, in the middle of this one line in the middle of this chapter, but it does set the seeds for something three books later. In terms of little nuggets for prophecies and the theories as well, Ned thinks of John separately when he thinks of his children. He thinks of his five true-born children, and then he thinks of John in a, sec a second later. Now, okay, you can argue that's because John is not his true-born child and his bastard, but we, I think we all agree by now, that is not the reason he's speaking, he's thinking about him separately. It's a different reason. And yet another hint to R plus L equals J in this book. Speaking of the Anna, it occurs to me here that she actually beats out Cersei twice. Cersei tells us about the beginning of her marriage to Robert and how Lyanna still dominated Robert's mind and soul. So she beats out Cersei there. Not that Diana particularly wanted that title or that honour, I'm sure. But either way, she's she's there instead of Cersei. And she actually is the one that gets Rhaegar, who, of course, Cersei wanted instead of Robert. So twice Cersei's beaten to the market and has to be set for second place. And again, going back to that attempted seduction of Ned, we can see that, although it's not the certainly not the only way Cersei tries to get ahead, it is a weapon that she uses to semi-quote that line to Sansa given when the uh, when Stannis' attack on King's Landing comes in, in Clash of Kings Cersei knows how to use what she's been given and it succeeds for the Kettle Blacks later on so more hints, lots more hints in this chapter. And speaking of this, the Anna connection because it seems as if Robert, talking about how much he idealises her even after death and separation it's very similar, actually, to how Littlefinger has idealised Cat or Catelyn. Even though Catelyn has died, but for essentially for Littlefinger she has. She's gone up north, he doesn't see her for going on 20 years. But still he's convinced that, he's, that she was the one for him and he deserved her and they were destined to be together. It's very, very reminiscent of Robert and Lyanna, I think. And actually, just as we finish this Eddard chapter, I realised I'd forgotten a note. Back from the beginning, there was a chap. This is Pycelle's quote about Tywin being angry. He says, Lord Tywin is greatly wroth about the men you sent after Sir Quigor Clegane. And that, apart from, yet again, confirming to us <laughs> Pycelle's connection to Tywin and his uh, Lannister fixation, again tells us about 
that Ned's plan from uh, from last week's chapter about sending Lord Beric etc out after Gregor again actually worked. It does piss off Tywin and does basically screw up his plans. This is not what Tywin wanted. So he Ned does actually outsmart Tywin Lannister in this early early War of the Five Kings type level. Just something to bear in mind. And again, give us another alas alarm for if only Ned had been allowed to play a larger role in that war. What could have happened? Considering how how well Rob does on his own. What about if he had Dad behind him? Alas alarm, alas alarm. On to Daenerys 5. Is it 5? I think it is, isn't it? That's right, Daenerys 5 with the heart eating and the the heart eating and the head melting. Probably one of Daenerys's more well-known chapters actually thinking back to Game of Thrones. I think the begin the end of her Game of Thrones arc is obviously more <laughs> memorable and more influential guess given what happens with the dragons, but this is certainly remembered as one of the key moments in A Song of Ice and Fire and we get big moments before that ending of the chapter as well now to be fair i don't really have a lot of notes on this even before as he's got to it there wasn't a lot to take away i think because it's just kind of obvious and how important it is but let's get to the men anyway so in this chapter we are introduced to the doshkaline having holding basically top spot in dothraki culture they are the really the upper level in terms of they're the only ones kind of above carl's almost and they kind of run the city if you think about it which is weird because the Doskalin are all female. While at the same time, they're talking about how they really don't want Daenerys' baby to be born female. So it's just weird that there's this relationship between, between both gender and old versus new. We've got the old Doskalin versus the newborn, and we've got the kind of twin ideas that women can... Dothraki can obviously respect women and put them in places of importance because we've just got that in Doskalin. And yet, at the very same time, they are holding the birth of a female to be of less importance or less luck than the than the birth of a male. So it's quite it's an interesting insight into their culture, and we may well get more of that in Winds if Daenerys returns there, as she does in the show. But definitely something odd to think about there. Now, I think it's a really strong image of Daenerys, who let's not forget is both a Targaryen princess and a Dothraki queen. She's down on her hands and knees and tearing apart a raw heart with her bare teeth and her, her hands and fingernails, etc. You probably couldn't persuade Cersei to do that unless she really really wanted to. Maybe if it was Tyrion's heart, she might. But the idea of being queenly and uh, presenting herself well and uh, obviously flies in the face of that this is Dothraki. I don't care if you're Khaleesi or Princess or whatever. You're getting down on your hands and knees. You're eating that heart if you want the, uh, the good news about your baby. I think this chapter is quite a, it's like a breather from the, we get a lot of heavily dense chapters of King's Landing at the moment. We're going to see this later in the John chapter as well. Obviously the Daenerys chapters are always breathers because they're very far away and a whole different, completely different culture, etc. But even though, even given that distance, we're still getting subtle slash not subtle clues, especially regarding kings, because if nothing else, this chapter shows us a king can die. If you, if you want to call Viserys a king, but the idea, this is you know this is the big, this is the first real major major death of the series. This is the first one people often remember. And George is warning us, hey look, I'm not afraid to kill off people, important people, and he's going to really back that up for us in the next, in the coming few chapters, isn't he? It's interesting how 
when this chapter comes to its climax and Viserys is really just going off on one and being even more of an idiot than usual, Daenerys would have actually given him the eggs. She says as much. She'd rather give him the eggs and let him go on his way than get him in any further trouble. But it's as soon as he threatens Rago's life, Daenerys' unborn child, as soon as he points a sword at her, her stomach, her pregnant belly, that is when Viserys dies for Daenerys. Despite the iron grip he has had over her for her whole life, let's not forget, Viserys is everything to Daenerys. She's grown up with him, sometimes, or most of the time, only him. He has been in charge. It is very, very recently the idea of him not being in control of her has occurred. But it takes one instant, one point of a sword, and then she is, he is dead to her. That is the end of Viserys. Now, thinking and kind of rewind this little back, I wonder if Viserys' hopes of gaining an army died the day that Daenerys got pregnant or it was announced she was pregnant. So we're not really clear on whether Drogo buys into these prophecies about Rhaegar and whether he could... Well, he, he obviously does buy into them, but at what point is what I'm saying? What time? Did, is it as soon as Daenerys was pregnant, did he believe that? Or if it, is it a Doshkaline only thing? Did this idea only occur to him kind of during this chapter because either way once that's announced once the idea of Rago being the stallion that mounts the world this prophesized uh, Dothraki hero why would Drogo bother helping Viserys anyway why go and why send a hundred thousand Dothraki warriors to help Viserys conquer Westeros if Rago the stallion that mounts the world is just going to do that later anyway you wouldn't think he'd be bothered would you so I just wonder at what point Drogo really did decide he's not giving Viserys that gift and he can kill him because it doesn't matter now. In terms of foreshadowing, this is the first crowning that goes wrong, really, really wrong, but it's certainly not going to be the last. In fairness, of all the kings that get crowned later in the Song of Ice and Fire, I don't think any of them would go wrong as quickly as this one, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do not end well for those who bear the heavy weight of the crown. And again, like I said, short chapter... Last note here, Daenerys, she kind of actually got all the requirements right for having a strong and healthy son. She does, she eats the heart, it all goes down well, she gets blessed by the Josh clean, and yet, obviously, it did not work. Rhaegar was not strong and healthy and did not live. So for all this being an introduction into prophecy and Stalin him out the world and etc, etc, George also reminds us prophecy is prophecy, not reality. Back to Eddard. Goodbye, Robert. And start kick off the chapter is another is another horrible dream for Ned. We can see these dreams becoming more and more frequent. Obviously, Ned's mental health is not doing too well at this current current time. I think this particular dream it shows that the revisiting of the Tower of Joy that he had with his kind of fever dream and the themes of death and and the relating of these really bad times coming back to him. This isn't they're not one time things thanks to recent exposure. He's probably been having this kind of dream ever since the rebellion, ever since he lost his dad and his brother and his sister. Maybe not so frequently, maybe not so vividly, but I'm sure Ned has been suffering these kind of dreams the entire time. And if he had lived much longer than he did, they were probably only going to increase because of how close he is to Lyanna-type stuff and John-type stuff and the stress of it all. Now, speaking of dreams, I think Robert says something along the lines of that he wants to fall asleep and be allowed to dream so it's interesting that Robert he's asking to dream because he really doesn't like actually where his reality ended up whereas Ned he would be the man saying no please don't let me dream because I've got real stuff 
that I don't want to remember Robert. He's got real trouble. That's not to say that Robert doesn't, but I think we can agree Ned's is worse. Now, moving past uh, Robert's actual death and the attempt by Ned to not seize power, I think that gives the wrong impression, but the attempt by Ned to move forward, he ultimately puts his faith in the paper shield, as it's called. And although that doesn't work this time around, we should not be categorising that as a definitely bad idea. Paper shields have won the day plenty of times in Westeros. There are many examples of that in Westerosi and real-world history about the importance of especially royal wills, but obviously documents of the of similar type as well. I think the mistake lies in relying on the will to give Ned the power he needed rather than Ned using his power to enforce the will. He should have reversed that. And it falls into that category of Ned not really realising the power he has and enforcing it to the benefit of all because... Well, I think we've said before, that's probably his main downfall. On the back of that, I think waiting until morning was his other key mistake. If he had acted immediately after Robert is passing on, as Renly presses him to, things could have changed. He was really, really not considering what kind of arena he's in. Even though he knows by now, we know he knows what King's Landing is now, but he still doesn't, he's still relying on people kind of being better than they are. He thinks this will wait till morning when obviously... People are flying around as soon as Robert dies, before Robert dies, making plots and plans and everything else. And like we said before, in the Godswood, everything's so finely tuned at this moment. We're going to find out more about that in the following chapters. That will slowly be revealed to us. But even at this moment, even later on with Robert's death, nothing is guaranteed. No one really has a large enough force or control to dominate. It all depends on the alliances still. So much could have changed in timing and numbers. When you think of the men that Renly had, what could have happened with Littlefinger, there's so many possibilities, again, like I mentioned earlier. If Renly had made perhaps a better pitch to Ned, if he had said about saving lives rather than just about seizing power, if Littlefinger had been able to just get over the hump, or if Ned had realised he doesn't really need Littlefinger, he could just do it all again, all his own, again, just using his office, things change. It's all really spinning on, spinning on one point at the moment. And to be fair, Littlefinger, he basically says as much to Ned. He literally says, the power is yours, Lord Stark. All you need to do is reach out and take it. If only Ned had actually followed Littlefinger's advice on this occasion. Because that is just really true. It's, again, that example of Ned not knowing what he is as hand. And now add the power of regency to that. Unfair, okay? Part of that is due to Littlefinger's quashing of that feeling of power we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Littlefinger has made a real concentrated effort to not let Ned feel as powerful as he actually is. But in terms of the power to take the gold cloaks, he doesn't even need Littlefinger. Just get him out of the way. Take the gold cloaks for yourself, your hand, your regent. You can just bypass. But that really doesn't even ever occur to him. We know what happens because of that. And these two offers of Renly and Littlefinger. And again, was Littlefinger really offering something here he very well could have been we don't know what could have happened if certain concessions have been made but either way the vacuum of stannis has felt again because neither of those two plans by littlefinger and renly really consider that at this point stannis is already prepped for war and neither of those plans about the throne are going to stop him he is coming anyway likewise renly is not just going to stop wanting the throne even if he gets his way from ned the structure of the Iron Throne has already been so rotted, the structure of King's Landing and politics in Westeros has already been so rotted that the claimants are coming. 
whatever happens. Ren is already probably thinking he's going to declare himself king. Stannis, definitely, we know. It's going to be long before Rob and Bayam Greyjoy join in as well. Ned's own plan of holding out for Stannis, which is kind of confirmed by his letter, seems like one of the only viable options. But again, he just acted too slow to see it realised. If only, if only. You know what I'm going to say. Alas, alarm. <laughs> right, back to John. John 6, the one with the school trip up above the wall. Now, like I said earlier, Daenerys is a little break from King's Landing, but John even more so, I think, I think as he's got to that that note. It's very little drama in this chapter. I think said episode then. In this chapter compared to people being melted by molten crowns and kings dying and coups failing. <laughs> very little drama in comparison. But it is a last gasp of that kind of moderate peace before John catches up with the rest of the book's arc and it all goes wrong for him too. We're actually going to see that at the very end of this chapter that he's being dragged into something altogether even worse somehow. Then we get some new imagery of the wall and the, the lands beyond it. It's much more beautiful and calming, very different to the way that John described the, the wall and the surrounding area before. We're getting more hints again of John being more comfortable and actually kind of liking where he is almost. Now that's going to be upset when he gets some news in a moment, but before we get there, we should talk a bit about, about Geo Mormont's speech, about, about the Night's Watch's words. I think Aziz did get to some of this actually, but he said one of the parts is that these new recruits that are about to take their words, they're the only sons we will ever know. Now that's important because Sam Motali is in this crowd, and think of his relationship with his father, who he obviously does not want as his father. So he's finding... If they're the only sons, then Jewel Mormont and the associated officers of the Night Watch, of the Night's Watch, they are the fathers, you would think. And Sam does go on to have a bit of a relationship with Jewel Mormont, not so close as John, but he still definitely looks up and admires and puts a lot, a lot of stock into him, so we can see that. And for John also, this is a replacement of a father figure. Now, John thinks that Ned is his father, so he doesn't he doesn't hate Ned like Sam hates Randall, obviously. He doesn't need that replacement as much. But Ned is gone to John. He's not his family anymore if we want to be cutthroat about it because John belongs to the Night's Watch now. So, again, it's that same father figure replacement that uh, Sam needs. And if we want to look at the reverse, Jewel Mormont, he's saying these are the only sons we will ever know because his own son kind of betrayed him and left and is gone and is essentially dead for him too so there's some real similarities on both sides of the tracks here now while we're talking about Jorah let's jump ahead a little bit because Jorah also says about how the Night's Watch is redemptive and a new beginning and you can forget your past crimes and he's probably seeing that as the only way Jorah could ever regain that lost honour and we know this from Jorah's last words in A Storm of Swords said to Samuel Tarly that we just mentioned he still chooses even yeah, a whole world away to tell Sam, to tell Jorah to take the black. Not tell him I love him or tell him he's forgiven or anything like that. Take the black because he knows that is the only way for Jorah to kind of walk back into the light, so to speak. And it's obviously playing on his mind and we probably get a hint of that here, even two books before his death. Now, Night's Watch words said, very well, blah, blah, blah. Now we get to the assigning of tasks and... Unlucky John, you get told you're going to be a steward. The last thing you wanted to hear. 
despite, like we said last week, him championing the stewards and how everyone has to play their part type thing. That's all gone out the window. He does not want to be a steward. And it's kind of like, if we're going to use this athlete um, analogy that we've been using a lot for John in the past few weeks, this is like telling the high school star who's going to be the equipment manager next season. That's how John sees it. He is the best. He was taught by Roderick Cassell and he knows how to fight and his own uncle was first ranger. He's got the pedigree. He's a Stark of Winterfell. And you're telling me I'm going to be a steward? No, 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 no. I'm the star. I get the shots. I get the trophy. I don't lay the kit out. That's how he's thinking. And we can show that... We can see, actually, John is kind of showing off that past pedigree and of being spoiled and kind of up himself a little bit. He momentarily forgets the lessons of Donald Noy here and all he's learned on the wall. He reverts very quickly, just for a few minutes. But those few minutes are a glimpse, actually, of how easily he could have turned into a Robert type where he just completely relies on that fighting skill and he never bothers to learn any more any more skills or different ways to look at the world. Luckily, this little temper tantrum only lasts a few minutes. And it's not the unfairest of temper tantrums, given John's age and... He definitely would have made a good ranger. But also I think it's more than that. I think being a steward annoys him because it adds a further degree of separation between him and Benjen. Benjen is the hero to John. He's most of the reason that he came to the war in the first place. He's already lost him kind of physically. Benjen isn't there. So he doesn't want to add another chasm between them. Now he can't even be a ranger like Uncle Benjen. Now he's got to be a steward like no one else though i don't think there's probably many stories of famous stewards on the wall maybe there are but not ones that teenage john is going to listen to it's also worth noting this is our first time beyond the wall since the prologue we're getting joined back to that eerie beginning and the end of the chapter certainly ties a bow on that link we also get our first warging hints they're not they're really really subtle we're not not full out warging yet but we do get little hints about john being very connected to ghosts uh, some other notes just on the vows and the words. Those vows, they kind of suggest that the Night's Watchmen are supposed to leave nothing behind except life itself. You can't leave children behind. You can't leave titles or land behind. You've given that all up. All you can leave behind is people still being alive down south. You're not part of that life. You're nothing to do with it, but you leave them alive. I think that was the original idea back when... The vows were written, at least that's my guess. I think when it says win no crowns, that also suggests that you fight for no crowns, which is going to come up very quickly for John in his next few chapters, that idea. And it also says sword in the darkness, which I think a lot of people have probably thought of. Lightbringer, maybe. And lastly for this chapter, we get a bit of foreshadowing in Darian, moaning about his life on the wall, and we know that is going to bubble up in Feast for Crows layer. Seems like we've got a lot of feasts for crows connections today which is nice but alas let's leave us let's leave john in his break for king's landing and return there for ned 14. so if ned if ned 13 was the setup and the decisions of ned not to go with various options laid out for him and putting that faith in the paper shield then this is the fallout from those choices this is eddard 14 where we see where that Devotion in a paper shield or that choosing Littlefinger over Renly, what happens because of it? And this is really the end of Ned's political arc. We've got one chapter left and we've got one 
kind of sighting of Ned left through Aya's chapter. But this is the final act of the book, really. This really begins after this chapter. It closes the door on Ned's investigation. It closes the door on Ned's ability to really influence anything. We're kind of playing the game. He's off the board, essentially, for, or at least he's not moving himself. He's not rolling his own dice now after this chapter. It's kind of difficult to remember how much actually happens after Ned's downfall and his coming death because I don't know maybe that's because of the show and that was the end of episode nine so we only had one episode after that in season one but we've still got a real kind of well as you can see this is only part eight we have nine ten and eleven to go yet there's a lot of stuff that happens even though this is the end of one aspect of Ned's life with the actual end not far behind we said in that previous chapter that Ned was able to go through um, the various small council members and attribute or judge kind of where they were and that was a hint of his political uh, thinking. But in this chapter he actually manages to doubt all of them except Littlefinger somehow. I'm not sure how he manages that but he does it and it's a big old hint about why he does fail eventually. This line of thinking obviously comes in the, the small council meeting that he declares pretty quickly and he finds out about Renly. Now firstly, before that, we've got to note it's a pretty smart move. He's redeeming himself a little bit. It's a smart move picking Barristan the Bold to read the will out loud because Barristan is the incorruptible one. He's the non-political one and he is a strong symbol in the eyes of all. There's a lot of symbol politics in this chapter as we're going to get to, but... So Barry, he's got the name that's kind of a bedrock. People know he's been around for years, especially in the eyes of small folk. Tywin notes that later on when he's saying about how foolish Cersei was to get rid of him. Barristan the Bold is a name that bears weight. He says something along those effect, and Ned obviously agrees by getting him to read the, read the will out. We also have Varys, him being sad about Robert dying. It's worth wondering, is he being genuinely sad because he had investment in Robert surviving a bit longer regarding his planned invasion with uh, Viserys and Drogo and Illyro. So this might be one of those times, as often Varys saying kind of <laughs> flauntily that he's sad in some way or another, and he might actually be telling the truth on this occasion. Varys also tells us that Renly fled with 50 men. Hmm. Renly said he could put 100 men in, uh, in Ned's command. So... Is it that he's left off and behind? Is it Renly was just talking rubbish and trying to get Ned to come along with him? So again, we see we see the possibility that Ned might have been screwed either way. Whether he takes up Renly's offer, Littlefinger's offer, we don't really know how genuine they, how genuine those offers are. Anyway, it's a real rickety bridge Ned's standing on here. Now Ned, he chose in the last chapter to go for this kind of deceitful route of. He changes the the name of Joffrey to Air, and it's he follows through with that in this chapter. It's a really hard move for him. This is really against what Eddard Stark is all about. You gotta remember that. But even with that difficulty, he does go ahead with it. He does leave this meeting. He does head down to the throne room, and goes through with the plan. He rides that paper shield. That by the way, that term comes up again later. Dance of Dragons is Samuel Tarly and he's actually talking to John. He says a paper shield is better than none. So maybe that's Ned's thinking here. Maybe, perhaps, that's not the only shield he could have got, but 
There you go. And it's also worth noting that he's not solely relying on the paper shield. He has sought some sharp swords of his own, but I think we get the idea. So this returns that idea of symbol politics because on the throne room, hey, hey, Joffrey, he's sat on the throne. He's not sat next to it. He's not sat with Cersei. He's sat on the throne. Cersei is saying, this is your king. Nothing else, no grey area. Your king is sat here. She's also dressed in press. There's some lines about her kind of wearing her best. She's, this is the optics of rule. She wants Joffrey to be seen as the king. She wants to be seen as the queen regent. She's using those symbols and those ideas to influence the people around her and help her cause at the same time. It's interesting if we refer back to the, what we spoke about before about Ned's plan of holding the castle for Stannis and what would happen there. It's interesting to think that probably still results in at least Cersei and Joffrey's deaths, if not Tom and Marcella too. So I wonder, did Ned have a backup for that? He must have known that surely. Did he think he could barter with Stannis? Do you think he had a specific bargain in place to save maybe the younger two? Was he going to try and smuggle them away later? What we don't know. Was this plan just to get Cersei out of the way and then think of something later? Did he have something already stored up his sleeve? We we don't know. But either way, it all still could have been successful. It could have gone to Cersei. It could have gone to Ned. This is just within the throne room. It's a real concentrated dose of politics and there's a certain amount of men in the room if things had gone different if ned had taken gold cloaks himself instead of trusting Littlefinger, blah 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 things could have changed as it is he posed trusting Littlefinger, and that is the clear factor that led to ned's failure even with that failure coming he still refuses to condemn tom and Marcella by declaring the incest and, and joffrey also in a way He's Ned is not a Tywin or a Robert where he feels the whole family needs to be eradicated and anything like that. He's doing his best to save children still. But as we know, it goes wrong. He gives the call and then so does Janos Slint. We know what happens. And certainly Ned is surrounded again not just by employees dying around him but by friends. He's allowed to live because he's a Stark. He's got the important surname. But all the others, they just get killed straight off. And it's more and more guilt laying at Ned's feet. Just as we said way back when, when Sir Hugh died and it was the hands tawny. Well, now all of his friends are actually dying and it's just because Ned is called Stark that he's allowed to live. And of course the chapter ends with Littlefinger just being unable to help himself basically. He has to pull one over on Ned. He's got to be the man. He could have just got any old gold cloak to take Ned into custody but no Littlefinger needs to be there it's got to be Littlefinger putting the dagger up under his chin and getting a smarmy one-liner in there we've been talking all the way through about the, all the way through the book about him getting these these points back of him and seeing himself as the downtrodden hero he's striking a point against his childhood bullies here even though Ned had nothing to do with his childhood it's all that teenage strife of Catling shining through right here even in a throne-deciding portrayal where the, the whole fate of a continent is being decided, he's got to get his personal insult in. It's amazing how, even in a moment like this, that's what dominates Littlefinger's mind. A couple of final notes here. If Ned had taken Renly's offer, and especially if Renly had had a hundred men, like he said, it really would have been even, even, even if Littlefinger had still portrayed him with the gold cloaks in that room, 
could have been real close. You don't know what happens. One sword goes one way, everything changes. I said earlier about this being self-contained. It's, it's strange, but a lot of the details of this specific incident, such as Ned claiming that Joff, Joffy's not the heir and stuff like that, it takes some time for this to come out. The fact that Littlefinger literally puts a dagger under Ned's throat, does that really get... That doesn't get brought up in general knowledge at all, I don't think, in the rest of the book. Sansa still to learn that. Uh, if Ned had fought to leak all this info widely beforehand, again, very, very different. And lastly, I think I already mentioned this, but about symbolism, it's very important. Joffrey is literally sitting on the Iron Throne instead of just because just next to Cersei. That's her version of a paper shield. It's all very well, her ripping up the will, but placing Joffrey on that specific chair, that's her paper shield. Okay, last chapter, I have four, where it all keeps going more and more wrong. I think Aziz looks like he got to most of my uh, notes on this, but let's go through the final ones before we close up shop. So we open up with play fighting or training fighting, and that that should already set a tone, a little worry in our stomachs because we know that while Sirio and I are playing with these wooden swords, we know actually what's happening across the castle with steel swords. The real blood is being shed here. George really teases us at the beginning of this chapter, really kind of tightens the screws. Aya, she thinks she's going home still, obviously, and she's actually turning around to it. Originally, she just thought it was a punishment. Now, she thinks it's okay. She can see John again. Sirio's going to come. She's going to be allowed to use the actual needle in her training. Ah, brilliant. And we <laughs> know that's not going to happen, or we can assume that's really not going to happen because we know what's happening again across the castle. So it's just a, another pit in the stomach, and you can even put Sirio in there. He probably would have done really well in Ned's service. They would have really got on. Sirio Winterfell, lovely thing to think about. We know it's not going to happen. And obviously, rereaders, we definitely know it's not going to happen. But either way, so it opened on a lesson, and we then get to see a lesson be put straight into practice when Marin Trant walks in, because Sirio, he's been telling Aya about how to see things properly, Marin Trant walks in and I was able to kind of look through the... Not not to say that Marin Trant is putting on a brilliant performance here of tricking Aya into coming with him, but Aya is still able to sense that something is wrong here. And, of course, this is a lesson, this is a motif that sticks with Aya throughout the rest of her arc, seeing through things, as Sirius told her. She goes on to see a lot and she's able to always look past the kind of front layer. And there's... And this, there's a kind of sad realism here with this fight between Sirio Pharrell and Merrin Trant in that even though Sirio is amazing and Merrin is very obviously not, one of them has cold hard armour and a real sword and one of them has a wooden stick. So for all the amazingness of Sirio and his skill, sticks don't beat swords and armour. And this is, you can almost imagine Sandor again standing in the corner and laughing at this. This is his lesson brought to life that armour and a sword beat pretty much anything else. And Sirio is well aware of that. He knows what his stick is up against and he goes on to fight anyway. As I think as he's got to about the first sword of Bravos, they do not run. Now as she's running we get this little um, story about the crypts and I think this holds some clues, some foreshadowing for John. He's obviously... The crypts are kind of his domain anyway. We know he dreams about them a lot. We're very aware of that. But he also says about here he's shown as a ghost covered in flour and given that John dies later and is likely to return. Seems like a ghost to me. And what's the name of his dire wolf? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. 
this ghost. So nice little connections there. So Aya, she's running through the castle. She sees the fallout. Aziz got to the notes about Harwin and Helen, I think. So I won't repeat those for you. But she sees the fallout of Ned's downfall on the normal fighting men of House Stark. Not even fighting men, stewards, again, like, um, like Helen. And this is going to be repeated later in Storm of Swords. Because exact same thing. She sees the Stark camps following the Red Wedding. She sees all the, the normal fighting men being slaughtered by the Freys. And finally, lastly, Aziz might have got to this, but it's the, the killing of the stable boy. Real gruesome, especially in terms of those accusing eyes. But it does set the tone for Aya's future journey. And what I mean by that is that she's not going off on a hero's journey of glory and revenge. Revenge might be included, but it's certainly not glorious. Aya has a, a lot of darkness to come in her journey, and this is the first symbol of that. And there you go, that is the last chapter that is the last chapter for today. That is part 8 of 11 of A Game of Thrones and Valar Reviedis. So a reminder, it's 8 chapters next week and then 3 weeks off for Aziz and Ashea. So obviously 3 weeks off for myself as well. We will try and get some different ep- different Isle of Faces episodes for you instead. I'm sure we'll get at least one. I'll have to talk to Lady Buckley. She's the one being lazy and never being here. No, I take it back. I take it back. If she hears that, there'll be trouble. But uh, in the meantime, please... Go and listen to Aziz and Shares live streams. Obviously, I'm sure you are anyway. All the other episodes that they've got coming out. I also want to mention Girls Gone Canon because they are starting their series on His Dark Materials, which I will not talk about right now because I'll add another hour onto the podcast easily. But make sure you catch up with them and follow all that because it's going to be a doozy. So for now, I should say goodbye. Thank you for tuning in and visiting the aisle. Please get in contact, please say hello, all that usual stuff. Visit the Patreon if you fancy, etc, etc, etc. You know what I say by now. And I will head off and see you next time. Bye, everybody.